Welcome to Podship Earth. This is your host, Jared Blumenfeld. If we're going to have a chance of combating climate change, it won't be through publishing more reports or having yet another meeting or because of the hundredth well-worded New York Times editorial is published. What it's going to take is moving into a war footing where we have clear, actionable mass communications that galvanize the public and compel bold, systemic climate action. Here's what we did in World War II. Industry is a double step to supply the sinews of safety, the armaments of war that an embattled world must have if democracy is to survive. Mechanical genius joins with the muscle of millions of men working to win for the ways of freedom, freedom to think, to speak, to rise, live and plan with one's fellow man. America's vast resources are harnessed to the job of being the world arsenal for this and other democracies. If there's one person who can help us navigate the path to a significantly more impactful national and global climate communication strategy, it's David Fenton, who's been called the Robin Hood of public relations. David dropped out of high school to photograph the free speech, anti-Vietnam and black power movements of the late 1960s. He then joined Rolling Stone magazine, co-produced the No Nukes concerts with Bruce Springsteen in 1979, David then founded Fenton Communications, which has worked to advance human rights, public health, and the environment using modern communication techniques since 1982. David's campaigns include aiding the rise of moveon.org, stimulating the rise of organic food sales, a decade representing Nelson Mandela and the African National Congress, saving swordfish from extinction with the help of top chefs, running Yoko Ono's campaign to stop fracking in New York State, and working with Al Gore and the UN on climate change. Today, we discuss the opportunities for shifting both power and the narrative on climate. I start by asking David, who just moved permanently to Berkeley from New York, about his first trip to California. My first trip to Berkeley was to come and photograph the riots at People's Park in 1969. The free spirits of Berkeley decided they needed to defend their park, and the National Guard was called out, and there was constant violence. The National Guard uh, fired bullets, and a guy named James Rector was actually killed during those protests. And I was 17 years old, and that was the first time I set foot in San Francisco Bay. It's just kind of mind-blowing. What did it feel like being and especially being 17? Well, it felt pretty apocalyptic. We thought Richard Nixon was going to cancel the election and we were going to make a revolution and we were following the, the Black Panthers as our vanguard. They fed breakfast to poor kids and did a lot of good. But it, it, it was a very utopian time and things happened very quickly. There was the music and the culture fed utopianism and radical transformation at that time uh, in a way that they really don't anymore. And of course, drugs were very involved. You know, everybody was stoned all the time. And uh, it was uh, pre-HIV, so we had free love too. So for a 17-year-old, it was very interesting to hitchhike around out here. 
<laughs> I mean, just tell her. I mean, we can't we can't move on to climate communications until <laughs> we've understood what free love, drugs, rock and roll, and utopianism meant in 1969. What was really interesting about that time, looking back, is I, I think it might be the only time in human history that a generation completely and almost instantly broke with their parents and their religion and their predominant culture, like overnight, you know, people took up meditation and Buddhism and uh, rejected traditional religions. And it was a very hopeful time. We really thought we were going to change the world. And, and in some ways we did. I got educated really in the streets because I dropped out of high school uh, to be a photojournalist for a uh, radical underground news service called, what else? Liberation News Service, LNS. And uh, they paid me $25 a week plus free communal dinners. And I got to uh, fly around the country photographing riots and tear gas and rock stars. It was, it was fun. <laughs> it sounds like an amazing movie. What did your parents, like, what was their reaction? Uh, they were kind of upset. I can imagine. Um, my mother used to uh, send me announcements that I could get a high school GED degree until I was 24. She got a little less upset when the New York Times started printing photographs I took with my name under it, and she could show her friends. But it, yeah, it was very tough on them. It was tough on a lot of parents. And I'm lucky I, you know, I found a productive niche to drop into because there were all these alternative institutions at the time. There were alternative newspapers, alternative filmmaking cooperatives. There was Liberation News Service. There was an underground press syndicate. You know, there were communes that were pretty productive. And a lot of people dropped out and did too many drugs and, you know, had mental health issues and killed themselves. You know, it wasn't all good. Nothing ever is. Looking back at that time, especially, you know, I think the generation thought that is never going to get as bad as Nixon. And then we have Bush, then we have Trump. I mean, what what is this kind of cyclical nature of of witnessing the politics and the revolution? It keeps churning. Well, I think the 60s accomplished a lot, but there's one major failure that we completely failed at, and that's to deal with power. And so, you know, there was a counter-reaction to the hippie and progressive movement, and uh, the corporate right mobilized to uh, take it back. And they succeeded. They started a network of think tanks like the American Enterprise Institute and the Heritage Foundation. Um, they started the Federalist Society to take over the courts. You know, they started uh, influencing policy debates and the media to be pro-extreme capitalism as opposed to regulated capitalism. And they succeeded. Uh, and it's partly because of our own mistakes, but that's the thing we did not make a dent in, and that's worse than ever. You know, the, the distribution of income is far worse than it was in that period. It's, you know, downright feudal now. So you're 17, you're in Berkeley, you, you go back to New York. I mean, it sounds like right away through your whole career, you started with this social focus on messaging and thinking about the power of words and images to evoke change. How did you get more seriously involved in that? 
Well, my education really came from my colleagues at uh, this uh, radical news service, Liberation News Service. And then I met this guy, Abby Hoffman, <laughs> who Sasha Baron Cohen just played amazing, artfully yeah. uh, in the Chicago 7 film, Aaron Sorkin's film, which if you haven't watched on Netflix, you really should. Yeah. Abby was the most creative, uh, brilliant movement tactician and propagandist ever. And people should really study him and read his books because he had amazing insight. He was really uh, one of the first to see what television was going to do to American culture and American politics. Abby was so funny. His most famous book was called Steal This Book, and people did. And he started this thing called the Youth International Party, uh, which became known as the Yippies. And what was amazing to me is that Abby would get the major newspapers and television networks to cover the, the activities of the Youth International Party. And it was like four guys. It was nothing. But he created this myth that had a significant impact uh, on the culture of the time. Uh, Abby used to have a radio show in New York on uh, the Pacifica station, WBAI. And the radio show was on simultaneous with the Walter Cronkite CBS Evening News. And the radio show was Abby commenting <laughs> I hear that. on the news I love it. while it was on. So, you know, you'd have to kind of multicast. It was brilliant. That is, I mean, that's so prescient. Like people do that now. You can watch Korean dramas and hear David Fenton's view on it. Oh, I didn't so, know. No, I mean, so it's amazing that, that he great. did that. Yeah. Now, of course, Roger Ailes, who started Fox News, he also saw at that time what television was going to do to American politics. And unfortunately, he uh, pursued an extremely evil approach to it. In the end, he was more effective and lasting than Abby. Abby was a kind of anarchist and mentally ill, too. He killed himself. He had deep bipolar depression, like a lot of creative people. Yeah. So I'm afraid uh, when it comes to the media uh, and imagery and language, Roger kind of won. And sadly. as you said, the corporations kind of won. They all won. And, you know, the, the left and the movements used to be dominant in the culture and in the media and really good at it in the 60s and early 70s. And then uh, I think they really lost their mojo and let this right wing disinformation uh, take over. And now it's the biggest problem we face. You can kiss democracy goodbye, as you saw January 6th, and, and, and you can kiss the climate goodbye because of all the disinformation that is on these networks and on social media. So I mean, it's know, so dystopian, David. I it's mean, it, terrible. It's like, but it's, I mean, if just Aldous Huxley, um, just thinking of Brave New World or Orwell in 1984, I mean. We need to do something about it. I got hired at Rolling Stone magazine to, and eventually became their director of public relations. And that's when I got to know people at the television networks and the New York Times and the Washington Post, bringing them stories from Rolling Stone when they were doing serious investigative reporting. I mean, Rolling Stone at that time was like the place to be. It was incredible. Yeah. I mean, I, I got to promote stories like how Israel got its nuclear arsenal, a story people don't even remember today. The first time I ever took a 
a, a story as a PR guy to the New York Times was a Carl Bernstein story about how the New York Times had several CIA agents on its payroll as, posing as reporters for decades. And it was a little embarrassing for me. I'm trying to get the New York Times to cover the fact that they were, you know, hosting CIA agents for decades, which they did to their credit. They covered the story. It was true. Incredible. <laughs> so, so it's charmed at this point. I mean, you start at 17. By this time, you have, what, like 25? That's right. So then Jan Winter fired me, as he does so many people from Rolling Stone. And I decided that we should rally the artistic community against the dangers of uh, nuclear power. And I ended up uh, producing the so-called No Nukes concerts at Madison Square Garden, five nights of concerts with Bruce Springsteen, Jackson Brown, Bonnie Raitt, the Doobie Brothers, James Taylor, Carly Simon. And, and we uh, changed the narrative culturally on uh, plutonium and radioactive waste and the dangers of meltdowns. And then I uh, started uh, my firm to do public relations for the environment and public health and human rights and social justice. In 1982, I was 35. And that firm's doing great today without me and still 100% progressive work. So, so like, what were you fired for? Like, <laughs> <laughs> insubordination, nice. what else? <laughs> <laughs> so you felt good about being fired? No, no one feels good about it. Uh, but it was, it, you know, Jan Wenner was famous for this. Well, it is scary to be fired. I mean, you know, it is. But sometimes, you know, moving on is the right thing. Yeah. So, okay, what's the link? Like, how did you go from anti-nukes concerts with Bruce Springsteen to thinking about public advertising or, or kind of social good advertising at that time. David Brower at the Sierra Club was a real innovator in his time in the 60s and 70s in buying full-page ads in newspapers to save the Grand Canyon mm -hmm. and stop environmental destruction. And, and he was very smart about it because these uh, would uh, spark debates and change debates and cause media coverage. The first public interest communications uh, operation was a nonprofit started in the Bay Area by Jerry Mander Herb and Gunther. Herb Gunther yeah. called the Public Media Center. And they were brilliant. Jerry was a longtime ad guy. And they were doing advertising for uh, nonprofits and social issues. So mm -hmm. it wasn't a new idea, but no one had set up a, an all-around communications firm to do PR and advertising for causes. It filled a need and it worked out. Now there's a whole industry of doing progressive PR and that's a great thing. Okay. So what did it feel like you were defending? The stakes every year get more and more serious. Well, the ultimate issue wasn't yet an issue, you know, heating the planet and destroying human civilization and flooding the world's coastal cities. We didn't have anything quite that existential to deal with at that time. You know, Jim Hansen's testimony to Congress on global warming was 1989. But we were very frightened about nuclear weapons. And, uh, you know, Reagan was making jokes about bombing Russia and the arsenals were out of control. So we worked on the nuclear freeze movement. So that was the existential threat to us at the time. In the same way that the freeze movement was. Um, and it's terrifying. Yeah. And so how do you think, in terms of the evolution of, of your thinking and how you communicate, like how can we 
turn the tide on climate communications. And and one thing you said that we can maybe start with is like we have a lot of communications. It doesn't feel like there is targeted or you know, it's been so diffuse now, the media. People get their media from so many different ways. Yeah. Well, you know, there are still big television events that everybody watches, but there's many fewer. The networks certainly have a much smaller audience than they used to, but the combined audience of the television network morning and evening news shows is still 35 to 40 million people a day. You know, to give you a comparison, you know, the audience for Fox News is about 2 million people. The problem is multifold, but in the case of the television networks, the problem is they don't explain the link between extreme weather and heating the planet to their audience. Almost never. Um, Why? Well, I think the main reason is that they see it as a politicized issue and they're afraid of it, which is pretty cowardly. Um, they get a lot of pressure from the right and the fossil fuel industry, and they get none from us, by the way, which is really a gap. What are you going to pay attention to, the people that are berating you or the people that never talk to you? So that's a, a failure of the movement as much as a failure of the television networks. I think also that the brain learns from the repetition of simple messages that's cognitive science. The repetition and enormous amounts of repetition of simple messages. You know, we hate, make America great again. But I'm sorry, that works. And in climate language, it's inscrutable to most people. Emissions, net zero, carbon, existential all these words that people don't know, and, and the scientists, and I'm afraid the NGOs too, we don't like simplifying things. It's not how we advance our careers. And we hate repeating ourselves. Like, didn't you already hear us? So the very things people need to do to get through to the public mind and change the political will on the most important issue facing humanity, our community doesn't do and doesn't like to do. Plus... We uh, all talk about climate change differently, you know, and, and so we have a kind of Tower of Babel situation rather than a unified voice to use our echo chamber. I think this is about to change because there are people that have now proven what language works. We know what works. And maybe if we all adopted it, it would, it would help. So then there's a deeper problem, which is what we call the enlightenment fallacy that you have a great policy idea or a fact and it sells itself. And, you know, that was never really true and it certainly isn't true now. It's delusional. The right and the corporate world knows it's not true and so they focus on simplifying, repeating, actually guaranteeing that they reach people uh, significant numbers of time. They focus on language. They focus on communications. They're really good at it. And they're used to this because they go to business school where you learn that you have to do marketing in order to sell products and services and advance your careers and frankly, we hate that stuff. <laughs> That's that dirty, manipulative, sleazy, ugh, selling stuff. And I think we're really wrong because you can sell the truth accurately 
And that's your ethical responsibility. It does not mean that you have to uh, shade or distort a thing, and you shouldn't. It'll only blow back in your face, and it's not ethical. So we have this terrible mismatch in that our enemies focus on public brainwashing and communications because they know it changes the polls and what politicians are willing to do, and it changes the definition of, uh, and the perception of reality and the zeitgeist. Just give me the restless power of the wind. Give me the comforting glow of the wood fire. But please take all your atomic poison power away. I don't know. It feels like a lot of the climate debate is driven by these incredibly wealthy individuals and foundations, but on, on you know both the right and the left, who put vast sums of money into trying to influence the climate narrative. I, I'm not sure if that's a good thing or not. The best way to explain this is to quote my friend George Lakoff, the great linguist. And so I heard him ask once, define the difference between conservative and progressive foundations. And he said, okay, the dominant worldview and metaphor at conservative foundations is preserve the system at all costs because we benefit from it versus the dominant worldview metaphor at liberal and progressive foundations, which is largely engage in many individually meritorious acts of charity. <laughs> as many as possible. I love it. So who's going to win that? So the climate funding, and there's a lot of it, this is not a movement that lacks for money, predominantly goes into what I call the supply of policy, studies, reports, science, meetings, conferences, opening offices around the world. As a result of all that great funding, we do not lack a supply of policy. We know what to do. We've got a lot of reports. We, we, we know exactly what to do. We lack demand. There's insufficient public demand. And so there's insufficient political will to go up against the nefarious, evil, tiny group of fossil fuel executives and their paid political agents who really would very dramatically uh, risk life on earth for humanity so they can make money. I mean, it's pretty Shakespearean friggin' dramatic. <laughs> so there's this uh, So how do we create mismatch. demand? Sorry? How do we create demand? Well, creating demand is, is basically a combination of communications and organizing. Like, for example, the Yale Project on Climate Change Communications is the premier public opinion research group on this issue. And their data is really disturbing. So only 25% of Americans describe themselves as alarmed about climate change. The most alarming thing humans have ever faced. Now, the good news is that's gone up quite a bit in the last few years, but it's only 25%. Only 21% of Americans know that all the climate scientists are in total agreement now that we are doing this to our, and that it's dangerous. Most people think there's significant scientific disagreement. And why is that? Well, it's not just because the fossil fuel industry's public relations strategy for decades has been to spread doubt about that, 
Scientists don't agree. Merchants of doubt, like the book and movie, which came from what they did in the tobacco industry. Um, they certainly did that, and they've been very successful at it. But we were kind of missing in action. We've never had a campaign to systematically inform the public that actually the scientists do agree. And at Yale, when they do focus group and research with different groups, all political persuasions, and they tell them, oh, by the way, all the scientists agree, support for doing something goes up like 20, 25 points, of course. Okay, so if if we know what's going to move the needle to help galvanize public opinion and turn that into political action, uh, and yet no one's doing it, doesn't, doesn't that feel like delusional? So this gets to another problem in the progressive world, which, which I hate to sound so disparaging, but we have what I call the telepathic theory of communications. Somehow we think or know something and magically everybody else knows about it. Now, in the business community, they know it doesn't work like that. In fact, marketers know that if they find a, a winning message or a piece of content and their research shows that they have to deliver it to the target audience 12 times for it to sell a product or service, and they only pay to deliver it eight times, they've wasted their money. So the repetition is key, but also is guaranteeing that your proven, tested content actually reaches your target audience a certain number of times. And we don't think that way at all. And you know, we think we, you know, we have an op-ed in the New York Times and the world has changed. Well, it hasn't. <laughs> so we need to do better at this. Now, Yale also finds that people hardly ever talk about climate change. They hardly ever hear about it. Another researcher I know finds that 40% uh, of Americans think that climate change is caused by the ozone hole. So now that's interesting. So why do they think that? So that's a, an imagery issue. So it's a hole. It's something your brain can grasp. What's the visual image uh, or mental model in the population about climate change? Well, the answer is there isn't one. It's mostly associated now with conflict and controversy. But if you ask people to describe what are we doing to the earth to cause climate change, most people cannot tell you. So that's a problem. You know, you want to mobilize for war to transform the entire industrial transportation and energy economy of the entire world as if for war. Well, if you want to mobilize for war, people need to know they're under attack and they don't. But David, I mean, come on, it, it can't be that complicated. And in all this time since we've been in this campaign, it, it we must have we must have come up with a clear way of describing the climate emergency. There's a great metaphor for what we're doing to the earth that's very visual and it's proven it works. And it goes like this. Our pollution is putting a blanket of pollution around the Earth that is trapping heat on Earth that used to go back out to space. It's like when you were a kid and your 
mom or dad would put an extra blanket on you and you'd wake up sweating. That's what we're doing to the earth, raising the temperature of the earth. And because of all this trapped heat, we're melting the ice, which is why you're having more floods. All this trapped heat energy are making the storms stronger. They're drying out the land and the forest, so we're getting more wildfires. This is a simple visual metaphor everybody can relate to. One of the leading proponents of it is this great, great uh, articulate climate scientist, Dr. Catherine Hayhoe at uh, uh, Texas Tech in Lubbock, and she's a Christian evangelical climate scientist who talks in plain metaphors. If we were to all talk this way and invest enough of our uh, enormous philanthropic wealth into getting this repetitively to certain public audiences, uh, the whole thing would change. Well, luckily, the future of the planet isn't at stake. So, you know, there's no urgency. To, to... <laughs> so here's another thing. So, so no, but before we get to the other thing, uh -huh. uh, before we get too more depressed. Sorry. No, so so if you think back to Abby Hoffman and the Roger Ailes dynamic and kind of project forward, it, I mean, it feels like everyone wants to have their own voice. Yeah. Everyone wants to have their own report, their own way of communicating. And so we've diluted the message, confused the public, and as a result, we don't have political will. So what you've suggested is clear, which is what is the communication strategy that will achieve the, the ends of educating the public to create enough political will to fight this war? But what's the psychological element of the people currently in the trenches that needs to change in order to adopt that message? People have to accept that the the truth doesn't sell itself. They have to get over their dislike of this kind of work is one thing, certainly. And people need to be data-driven. Uh, you know, when there's uh, sufficient data about what's moving what audiences, why won't you use it? And as part of the reason for that, David, just that same original sin of disdain for the ad advertising world. Well, remember, lawyers didn't used to be allowed to advertise. Uh, you know, doctors couldn't. I wish drug companies couldn't now. So there is some good news. There's a there's a new group that's doing some of this really well, and they are raising significant money. It's called the Potential Energy Coalition of top creative advertising and digital marketing agencies who have come together, led by a, a former corporate branding executive named John Marshall to do this kind of work, data-driven, proven communications to wake the public up about climate change. And so there's finally a force to do it, and, and I think it needs you know, a whole lot more support. And, and they've started a new group called Science Moms, sciencemoms.org, which is uh, our climate scientists who are mothers uh, and talk about why they do what they're doing to protect their kids so their kids can play outside and you know not get burned up in wildfires. And these people have made the most poignant, heart-touching advertising ever made on the climate issue by far. It's very persuasive, especially with the most persuadable segment of the country, which turns out to be suburban mothers of all races and political parties who want to take care of their kids. So that's the good news. So, so given all this, you know, how, how optimistic are you about our capacity to turn around the fate of the planet? Had we done a campaign at mass scale to really get the public to understand this 
and they had rejected it, I'd be really depressed. But it's never been done. Paul Revere has not made his climate ride. People do not know what is coming. And I actually have a lot of faith that people have good sense and they don't want the future eradicated. They just don't know that's what's at stake. So when are we going to tell them? So this gets to a political issue that is a little troubling right now, which is that, you know, the Biden administration is doing so many great things on climate change, but they're not using yet the so-called uh, bully pulpit. They're not using it. Biden's not using it yet to explain the danger to people. They're talking about jobs, which there'll be lots of through energy transformation, but people kind of have to know there's a problem to want to support a transformation and the president has a unique ability to educate people and set the public agenda and overcome disinformation. So, so Biden listens to this show, you should know that. And so what would you say to him right now? I would say bravo, but uh, we need some Franklin Roosevelt fireside chats, not only on the solutions, but balancing it with the urgency of the problem. But doesn't that just terrify people? In the same way that the nukes did. Yeah, but the terrifying people about the nukes led to the arms control agreements. Look, nobody wants, nobody thinks you should just be negative. This is a balance question, like most things. And it's a balance between hope and fear. So mostly you need to have hope. And he's doing that part great. But you have to have some fear and urgency. Because look, we have eight and a half years left to cut global emissions by 50%. Yeah. So that means really we have two or three to build up the momentum to do this. And we can do it and it'd be great for everybody. And not but, so great if we don't, is your point. Oh no, it's over. It's irreversible. Carbon pollution doesn't come down on the human timescale. It's up there for centuries and millennia. People don't know that. So that's why every molecule you add today is causing disaster because it's up there for so long. So we have to explain this to people and people can get this. There's a much better world ahead of us. It's much healthier, much cleaner. There's much more employment. There's much lower energy costs. So fear is fear is an illegitimate way of describing what is actually a very, very terrifying future. You know, uh, I'm 69 years old, and I would say the most important thing I have learned in life is that there's no black and white, that everything is a dialectic, everything is composed of positive and negative within the whole. Everything is yin and yang, and it's constantly changing within a whole. Sometimes the yin is dominant, sometimes the yang is dominant. Life is a question of balance. So it is not a choice between talking about fear or talking about hope. It is how you combine them effectively. So Biden's doing a great job on the hope side, but if he would add a little public knowledge, which he uniquely can implant in the public mind, that scientists are telling us like they did on the virus, that we have to prepare for this and hurry up. We don't have a lot of time. Time is running out. Yes, he could do that, and people would hear it. How do you think about equity interfacing with climate and, and how we should communicate that? Because the climate impacts that we're already feeling in California don't affect everyone equally. If, if you're poor, if you're black or brown, 
you're feeling the impacts significantly worse and kind of coming out of the pandemic, is this an opportunity to kind of reframe how we think about climate and equity? Yes, of course. These chemical uh, plants and oil refineries that are intentionally put in poor black communities in Louisiana and elsewhere, you know, you know, these are crimes against humanity and they must stop. The moment we will really do something about this is when most people think they're on the front lines of climate change. When everybody sees that it's a threat to everybody's way of life, then we will act. We need to keep highlighting the equity issues. They're an essential part of this, but we also have to focus on the mass unity approach of this if we're going to succeed and get enough power to solve it. And if we don't get enough power to solve it, which we can only do through majority appeal, how are we going to help the frontline communities? So that brings us full circle to kind of how you think about power now and how we change that dialectic, that frame around power that's been built up since 1969? Like, how do we regain that power? Well, I'm sure we will, you know, because pendulums are real in history. If we're around, we'll regain it. <laughs> but if we don't solve climate change, we're not going to get to solve racial issues and criminal justice reform. I mean, imagine the stress on civilization when you have to abandon coastal cities. I don't know how we get over that. So one big part of the power issue is corruption. And we have to limit the influence of money on our elections and, and deal with this ridiculous Supreme Court decisions that an individual can spend all their own money without limit and Citizens United. You know, this has to be changed. It needs to be one person, one vote, not one dollar, one vote. But then there's the propaganda aspect of power. And it's as serious as the corruption. Because, you know, those people on January 6th, they really believed the election was stolen. 70% of Republican voters believe the election was stolen. Now, why is that? Well, it's not just Donald Trump, it's Rupert Murdoch, and I'm afraid it's Mark Zuckerberg. And these platforms that, you know, it used to be that to find a crazy right-wing thing, like the John Birch Society or whatever, it was hard. You had to find their mailing address. You had to you know, find the right post office box to write to to get a subscription. And now the YouTube and Facebook recommendation engines and news feeds put it right in front of you. And that's not healthy. And you cannot have a democracy and have that. So these platforms, in my opinion, need to be regulated. And in particular, the algorithms need to be regulated because the problem isn't that people can post something. That's probably okay in most cases. The problem is the company's making money by boosting the most controversial, false, salacious, reptilian nonsense to people to make money to keep their eyes on the platforms. These companies need to be broken up and they need to be regulated. In European countries, there are basic regulations on media and they have vibrant free presses and they criticize the government all the time, but there are some checks and balances on this power and we need some of that. We cannot let 
the beauty and importance of the First Amendment's protections for criticizing the government lead to the complete disintegration of public health, the climate, and the democracy. That's kind of out of balance. A huge thank you to David Fenton for sharing his amazing life story and his Abby Hoffman-inspired critical thinking on climate. Isn't it time we communicated like our lives depended on the outcome? As a movement, we have to accept that the truth doesn't sell itself. Just like corporate America, we need to be data-driven. We must stick with simple, clear, repeatable messages, and we need to talk about both the opportunities of a clean economy and the real threats and dangers of a climate apocalypse. We know that messaging telepathy doesn't work. There is no magic. If we want the public to understand the need for climate action, we're going to have to immediately embark on a huge targeted media campaign with real metrics because communication is a science that we on the left are treating like an art form. If we don't up our game in fighting right-wing disinformation, then there won't be a democracy or a planet to fight for. As a result, the clean power movement will only succeed if we also clean up the structures of power by rooting out money and corruption from politics and deregulating the excesses of the mass media. The good news is that it feels like the pendulum really is moving. Just this week, we had verdicts against Shell in the Netherlands and a shareholder revolt at Exxon. Let's use this moment to have an honest conversation with the world about what's at stake and how we have all the tools necessary to create a brighter future. Thank you so much for being part of the Podship Earth journey from the entire Podship Earth crew, sound engineer Rob Spate, executive producer David Kahn, and from me, Chair Blumenfeld, power is knowledge, so let's act like it. 